So in Advent, we talk about waiting. Talk about waiting. We are waiting upon the Lord with expectation. We're waiting patiently. Um, I hope and pray faithfully uh, as well as prayerfully. We're waiting. It's a season of waiting. We're not quite done with our waiting. Not for another seven days. But as we wait upon the Lord, we, we also groan as we wait. Many of you have given voice to this kind of groaning in your posts on the Advent blog online, and you have great precedent for doing so, I should say. Paul gives voice to this in Romans chapter 8, one of the best chapters in the Bible, where he says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. He says, it's not only us, it's not just the people who groan, but all creation groans awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. So, while creation and the world that we know and that we live in is most certainly a thing of beauty and of awe-inspiring power, um, think of things like sunsets or waterfalls or whatever it is for you, beautiful art, um, the smiles of innocent little children. We, we live in a world of beauty, but it's also a place, a world of, of dramatic brokenness as well, um, a place where pain and suffering and evil mar the landscape more, more than we would like to admit. Uh, more often, it's a place where we cry out this, this cry, How long, O Lord? That cry of the psalmist. How long will our brother Jeff have to fight with this cancer? How long will relationships remain broken in our midst? How long will lies and spin and the politics of power prevail both in the world and in the church? How long, O Lord? How long? We find ourselves asking these questions. It's actually quite easy to see in the midst of the world as we know it and as we experience it that, that we as those who follow Jesus, and I'll speak to, to those of you who put yourself in that category specifically for a moment, could become the laughingstock of the world around us. You say that Jesus reigns. You, you say that love is at the center of the universe. But just look at the world in which we live for a moment. Consider the empirical evidence. Look at hunger. Look at poverty. Look at the injustice and the violence in the world. Look at the wickedness, both inside and outside the church itself. Look at the failed promises that sort of wreck human community. If God is truly reigning, then why doesn't he show it more and more and more? So this kind of thing has been going on for a long time, obviously. This kind of rebuttal to the Christian claims. Think back to when the chief priests and the scribes said to our Lord Jesus, the King of Israel, they said, when he was on the cross, he saved others. They were mocking. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What they said 2,000 years ago is no different than the role-playing that I just did. So we who have hoped in Christ hear their ridicule even back then. We feel the apparent contradiction of things as we experience them. And we understand the desperation and the groaning. And we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. That's where that leads us. That's one of the places that Advent takes us to. So here's what I want to say, actually, to those of you who identify with that experience. And I know that many of you do. I know, actually, that all of us do at one time or another. That far from, from being an unfortunate accident, it seems, actually, to me, that God ha- has a way of working in us through the very conditions that I've just described. And that this is actually integral to his plan 
for his people and for his power to go out into the world. We're not alone. A quick survey of the people of God throughout history would indicate that actually this is a dominant position. Abraham and Sarah, Joseph, the Israelites in Egypt, facing the Canaanites upon entering the Promised Land, before the Philistines and Goliath, Elijah, Nehemiah, to bring us directly into the passage even today, the Jews of the first century who had been waiting and waiting and waiting under foreign rule. This this place of crying out and groaning in desperation is a place in which there's a lot of company. For 500 years, uh, the nation of Israel had been waiting, basically in exile. Yeah, indeed, they had returned to the land. Um, and yeah, there was a bright spot when, when this you know, zealous guy named Judas Maccabeus gained the upper hand about 165 BC, but that was short-lived. They were, in fact, groaning. They, they were wrestling with the realities of their less-than-ideal condition. They, they were under imp- oppressive rule, the rule of Rome and of Caesar. They had a puppet king who did Caesar's bidding. And so in the midst of that circumstance, they were longing for God to act. They were waiting for God to come and fulfill his promises, promises that we read about in the Old Testament tonight in 2 Samuel 7, promises of a king who would come and who would reign on David's throne forever, whose kingdom would have no end. We read about it in Psalm 132 as well. To bring them home from exile, to return to his people, to be fully present among his people. This is what they were waiting for. And they knew these promises well, but they had to keep waiting. And then from out of nowhere, God sends Gabriel to this teenage woman who was engaged to be married. And he tells her not to be afraid. He tells her that she has found favor with God. And his word for her is that the long-awaited fulfillment of these promises was actually now going to be fulfilled in and through her. She would have a son. She would have a son who would be God's son. Who would be David's heir. The long-awaited king. And his kingdom would have no end. That is the word of promise. To be fulfilled. So she asks this honest question uh, in verse 32, 34. She asks this question So, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel answers that though not yet having a husband, that she would have a son by the indwelling power of the Spirit and by the power of the Most High overshadowing her. God would draw near to her and great things would happen into a situation if you think of it like this, where no life was possible, into that situation, God would make a way. In fact, he had already done so in her barren relative Elizabeth. There was already life for six months now already, growing inside of this woman, miraculous life. And then he gives to her the essential insight upon which every single Christian's life must be based in verse 37. For nothing, he says, will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. In particular, the bringing about of life where no life was naturally possible. Even though Elizabeth was barren, even though you don't have a husband, Mary, even though Abram and Sarai could not have children, I will make a way 
Paul writes about Abraham and Sarah in Romans 4, that they believed this promise of God for an heir in hope against hope. In hope against hope, they believed. Even in the face of the deadness of their own bodies, that they were beyond the age for couples to bear children in hope against hope. In natural terms, they were dead. There was no possibility of life. When everything around us seems desperate and impossible, when the word of God seems anything but fulfilled, when we are brought to an end and we can make things no better in our lives, it's at that point where faith is genuinely faith. This place of absolute trust and receptivity. It's really not until we get to that point um, that we actually cling to God to do for us what we know that we cannot do for ourselves. For so much of our lives, we have far too high a view of our own agency, of our own power. But it's really when we get, only when we get to these situations of absolute desperation and powerlessness that we get a picture into what reality is actually like all of the time and not just in those moments. That God, by his grace, by his power, is literally upholding the universe moment by moment by moment and that apart from him, we can absolutely do nothing. The pictures of God reigning and God ruling and me dependent and needy. This picture was true with Mary. God had promised a son, and not just, not just any son to her, but she's actually powerless to bring about what the angel Gabriel speaks to her in this passage. If left to nature, the promise will fail. Seems like so many times the Bible brings us to that place, where if left to nature, the promise will fail. But what is impossible with nature is quite possible with God, with the God that we serve, the one whose very word made and created and shaped nature. So Mary, instead of protesting, as we we saw earlier, asked for information, how will this be? And when Gabriel answers and says, everything will be possible with God, no word is impossible with God, she gives this statement of faith in verse 38 that becomes a model for all of us who are waiting upon the Lord. Behold, she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to his word. Absolute trust. Receptivity. Confidence in the word. In the God who, as Paul puts it in Romans 4, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is a complete self-offering and self-emptying. Here I am, Lord, have your way. It's a posture of yieldedness in the most extreme way and of obedience that leads to God's way of salvation being expressed and accomplished on the earth for Mary and for us. And that posture, that response can only come out of a place of complete desperation, a place of powerlessness. The question to ask you is, have you let this Advent season of waiting bring you to that place of dependency, of emptiness, and of longing in desperation for God to come and to act in his world. To the recognition that that whatever your circumstances might be right now, for some of you they're quite good, and for, for some of you they're very grim. 
in any case, that, that you are wholly dependent upon the Lord for, for all things, for everything in your life. Have you forsaken all, all other hopes, all other means, all other pathways, and cried out with your heart, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. That's where this Advent takes us. Let me ask this next question. So what's in it for Mary? So we're in this story in Luke 1. And we need to be clear and say that when Mary said, when, when Mary got this word and said, let it be done to me according to your word, she had no idea that she would be made into a little figurine and put on most people's bookshelves every year around the world. Mary uh, had no idea that her yes would lead to such a place in God's church, a rightful place to be honored as an example of devotion and availability to God to do his will and his work through her. No, her yes to God in her context would lead to shame and to misunderstanding and heartache. It certainly interfered with her dreams for her and Joseph to settle down and have a normal family. In fact, even after this promised son was born, um, when he was still a young baby, Simeon says to her that a sword will pierce your own soul also. And about 30 years later, after he was born, she would go through the most excruciating heartache that a woman could ever bear in seeing her own son crucified upon a cross. See, the God who stood by ready to bring about miraculous life into her body would lead her on a strange road, even as the promise was being fulfilled. She would find herself in a place of desperation and of groaning all over again. Her yes was costly. Her son's yes was costly. He ended up being forsaken and crucified. It wasn't the promise of her best life now that led her to say yes. It wasn't that at all. So what's in it for her? What's what's in it for Mary? It was this simple fact. It was the blessing of God himself. Of being his. Of of belonging to him. of Of being his agent. Of being his servant, his vessel. He was everything. And the same is true for us, actually, who find ourselves as the favored ones of God, just like Mary. As Gabriel comes and says, oh, favored one. We we are those who cling in hope against hope to the reality that God raises the dead. Fundamentally, that is your hope. That is my hope. That God raises the dead. That God will bring life where no life is naturally possible. This is our only hope. And so we say, we say yes to God. And, and in so doing, we yield like Mary yielded. We give up the ways of the world to become conduits of the life of God on earth. We forsake power games and politics. We forsake exploitation and deception, even when these things may give us the upper hand or get us a step ahead of everybody else. We speak the truth. We honor our neighbor. We choose to be wronged rather than to wrong. And this is what yieldedness means. It means that we step out of what is honored and valued and praised 
and rewarded in the world that we know it, the world apart from our God and his ways and his will. And it means that we step into an upside-down kingdom. We step into a way of life that's defined by simply yieldedness, first and foremost. Let it be done to me according to your word. Have your way with me, Lord. You know, it may mess up my plans. It may really take me off course. I may not get what everybody says is valuable and worthy to have. You can go for it. I know we're about to burn the wreath. (laughs) It's all right. There is still hope, joy, love, and peace in this place. And Jesus is still the light of the world. Um, So... (laughs) Um, That's great. I'm glad we're not going to have a fire tonight. I'm glad we're not going to have a fire tonight. Um, so we forsake, we forsake all of these things. And we know in, in so doing that we may become the laughingstock of the world. I've had conversations with some of you, heart-to-heart conversations, about the feeling of having given your life over to Jesus and given up so many different things. And, and asking that question in the depth of your heart, at night, when nobody else is with you, is it worth it, Lord? That's an honest question. You know, I stepped out of the path that everybody else was taking. I stepped out of the main, the main highway down which everybody was flowing so that the rewards of this world are not really available to me anymore. Was it worth it? That's what it means to say yes. As Mary said yes. When she said yes, she embraced God as her treasure. And everything else was lost. And if the the yes of Mary led her heart to be pierced with a sword, and if the yes of Jesus led his side to be pierced with a spear, then we can and should expect that our yes the Lord will lead to something quite similar. It may look differently for each one of us, but we should expect that kind of thing. In the midst of of the agony of our yes to God and our forsaking the world, there is this very important detail, and it is actually life itself. What was true physically for Mary as God came upon her is true very spiritually for each one of us as God comes upon us. That there is a life that's born inside of us. A life that is true life that enlightens every man, as John says in the prologue to his gospel. And that this life will begin to have a root in us and start to work itself out in us. And it's this that makes the yes and the agony that comes with the yes and the desperation of the waiting and the unfulfilled hopes and expectations. All of those things very, very worth it for us. To be the slave of Christ is to have the most freedom. To be the lowest in the kingdom of God is to be far higher than the highest in the kingdom of this world. To be his child is the greatest bliss. And this is the deepest secret of all of life. This is the truth that ultimately sets us free. So we say yes, and in so doing, we forsake the treasures of this world. We forsake the valued things of this world. We forsake keeping up with the Joneses. We forsake... All of these things that everybody says we should pursue for the sake of the one who is the true treasure, who is Christ the Lord. This is what 
The book of Hebrews writes of Moses in chapter 11, that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Or it's said similarly and more subtly in the book of Proverbs chapter 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So there's desperation in our world. There's desperation right now in our community. There's groaning. There is this question, honest question, a real question. How long, O Lord? How long? These these are our Advent cries. Well placed. But, But into the midst of these cries comes the word of God. And it's a word about life. And it's a word about an everlasting kingdom. It's a word about the renewal of all things in heaven and on earth. Ultimately, it's a word about resurrection. And it's an impossible word for us. It's an impossible word so far as it depends upon us. If we are all that there is to hope in, then we are fools. But for God, all things are possible. And this is our hope. This is everything that we have staked our lives on. And so we say with Mary, yes, God, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let me take the lower place. Let me give up the the ambitions and the self-centeredness of the world and of my own heart. Let me stand in reproach outside the gates with Jesus. Let me be there with you, Lord. Close with this. Sometimes in life we can say these things with Paul from 2 Corinthians 1. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But then he goes on to say, and we can agree with him in the good providence of God that moments like this, that the world in which we find ourselves, that the situations that we sometimes find ourselves in are given to us, as Paul says, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We're learning absolute trust and receptivity at any cost. And I know the cost is great sometimes. Even as we bear the life of Jesus to the world as Mary did. Jesus is the treasure. He he is enough. He's more than enough. Amen.